0: one of the many words that I love is the word disciple. The word disciple is one that you'll hear me refer to frequently because it is such a great descriptor of who we are. We are disciples of Jesus. The word disciple really is best translated learner. It comes from, of course, discipline. You need discipline to be a disciple, but the word or the the interpretation of disciple, learner. We are learning together how to follow Jesus. The power of this word, disciple, is one of total equity. It means when we are disciples of Jesus, we're all in this together. We're all learning how better to follow Jesus. It levels the playing field. It allows all of us, regardless of where we come from and how much experience we have, regardless of our age or place of origin, it allows us all to simply with humble hearts say, I'm still learning how to follow Jesus. I am a disciple. So with that in mind, as learners, let us learn together from this passage, the the power of these words, both from the second chapter of Ephesians and the 103rd Psalm. The second chapter of Ephesians is in the middle of some other very important material that the Apostle Paul is sharing with the church in Ephesus. And two other words emerge out of this larger context of the second chapter. And those words are mystery and destiny. Mystery and destiny. In the third chapter and then later in the fourth chapter, Paul says, out of the mystery, now in the fullness of time, God has called Gentiles to become a part of the family of faith. The mystery of God has now been revealed. Gentiles, a part of the kingdom. And a little later, the mystery in God's fullness of time has been revealed now that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the head of the church. The mystery in the fullness of time. Now, just this word, mystery, and the, the words surrounding that reveal something if we look between and among these scripture passages. We recognize a congregation in Ephesus filled with people that look and sound and struggle a lot like you and me. A church, not unlike this church, trying to figure out how to live their lives in their daily existence, in their businesses, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, among friends and others, trying to figure out how to live in what, in those days they didn't use this phrase, but it was a globalizing economy. It was a multicultural context where people in Ephesus, just like in the other Congregations. Paul was trying to deal with. They were trying to figure out how do you worship with people you don't understand? How do you deal with people you don't like? How do you interact with a community that increasingly seems divided and disrupted and strange? And... In this context, in these lives of people who needed to hear a good word and some guidance, Paul talks about mystery and this other good word, destiny. In the first chapter, Paul says, your destiny, how you're to live, why you're here, the whole purpose God puts you in this place in this time is to live for the praise of God's glory. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about living for the praise of God's glory. That's in the first chapter. Now we come to our second chapter for our passage today. This other destiny, this idea of why are we here? What are we supposed to do? And this beautiful passage that Christian read so well a moment ago. We are what God has made us. Through Jesus Christ to, did you hear what he said? To do good works. First chapter, we're here to live for the praise of God's glory. We're here, made how God has made us, through Jesus Christ to do good. Now, this is a phrase, we are what God has made us, that many say, is a direct reference that Paul is making clear, he's also wanting us to flip back in our minds and our scriptural understanding to what Randall read a few moments ago, Psalm 103. If you listen carefully, fold it into that beautiful poetry and the powerful words of Psalm 103. Paul seems to be echoing that very important psalm. We are what God has made us. What has God made us? Well, Psalm 103 says, God knows how we were made. God remembers that we are, did you listen? God remembers that we are, not were, God remembers that we are dust. Dust. We are dust. The great astrophysicist and Christian John Polkinghorne likes to say that biologically, we are nothing more than recycled stardust. Now, if you know how we're made up, we're 60% water, but the rest of us is mostly carbon. In other words, dust. So if you're thinking you're pretty hot stuff, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, (laughs) the Bible has something to share with you. This reminds me of growing up in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, going to Signal Mountain Elementary School on the playground, getting mad at one another, getting in arguments, and we used to say, you ain't nothing but dirt, not realizing that we were preaching the gospel. This is Psalm 103. It comes right out of Genesis 2. We ain't nothing but dirt. In fact, we're dust. God knows how we were made, remembers how we were created. And if you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you are sort of like the flower of the field. You bloom for a day, but the wind blows and the flower falls. And listen to this. The earth doesn't even remember that you existed. It's a little depressing until we we rise up in the crescendo of this Psalm 103. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting unto everlasting. I love the word steadfast. It's solid. It's immovable. It's trustworthy. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting unto everlasting. I love that phrase. C.S. Lewis likes to talk about deep time before history. Deep time before time. That gets a sense at this poetic phrase from everlasting unto everlasting. For as far as we can imagine in this direction too, as far as we can imagine and beyond in this direction, that's a brief description of God's steadfast love. So to the Ephesians, Paul seems to be reminding them this is not about you. We all think it is. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about being privileged to participate in, to be a part of the steadfast love of the Lord that is from everlasting into everlasting for a brief time that is our lives. We have the incredible opportunity to get woven in together to God's steadfast, amazing love. This is what Paul now surrounds this phrase. We are what God has made us with. For by grace you were saved, not by your own doing, but through the gift of Jesus Christ. Now this other word now, grace, it is a word that in our Christian circles sometimes gets overused without a clear explanation, sometimes to the point of almost cliche. We hear it, okay, we we know what it means. Sometimes, though, we forget its power. So just for a moment, I learned about the power of grace. Early on helped me continue to learn about the power of grace even still now. My first ministry job, it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year in college. I was the activities director at the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was responsible for 35 children ages eight to 18. My job was to provide activities with them every day during the week so that they would stay busy, stay out of trouble, maybe learn something new, but mostly it was sort of a glorified babysitting thing most of the time. However, in July, I was informed by my supervisor, Mr. Blaxengame, that there's a two-week window in July where the house parents of the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home had been planting a garden in this large field in the middle of the campus. And the garden in the middle of July was ready to be harvested. So therefore, as the activities director, it was now my job, Mr. Mr. Blassingame informed me, to divide those 35 children into work groups and they would be responsible from early, early in the morning until just before lunch, under my supervision, to go into the garden and pick the vegetables. They would pick corn and tomatoes and cucumbers and okra and, and bell peppers and they would put them in these baskets. And then the baskets, Mr. Blasemgames said, are to be put in the back of Bessie. He said, now you're gonna, you're gonna drive Bessie. He said, Did, you do know how to drive uh, uh, three on the tree, gear shift on a column. He said, Bessie's a 55 Ford pickup. You, you do know how to drive a Ford pickup with, with three on the tree. I didn't know it was called three on the tree. I knew what four on the floor was. But three on the tree is when the gear shift is on the steering column. Well, I frankly had never driven a pickup truck with three on the tree. But I thought, well, I can do four on the fo- floor. And, and Mr. Blassingame was big and a little bit scary. And so I didn't want to make him think I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, sure, I, I, can, I can drive Bessie. Bessie, it turns out, was parked in a, in a car shed, a, a carport up on the top of this high hill there on the campus. In this carport, over the top of the carport was Bessie's name, Bessie. And there was this 55 red Ford pickup. So I go up the long, straight, steep driveway and I get in Bessie. The kids are in the garden, they're doing their jobs, they're picking all the vegetables and I, I get in Bessie, I start her up, I know how to drive a clutch and I very carefully I figured out the, 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 where reverse was and I very carefully backed all the way down, slowly, very slowly, carefully down that straight, long driveway, made a three-point turn, drove down the, the, the campus road went over the little bridge that went down, then a steep embankment on into the flat area where the garden was. Started with the corn. Corn got loaded onto the back of the pickup truck, then tomatoes, okra, bell peppers, cucumber. By the time I got to the cucumbers, I was feeling pretty good about myself and pretty comfortable with Bessie. Bessie's now loaded down with all these vegetables. I drive back up over the the, the steep bank down the camp road. We unload all the bushels of, of vegetables to Mrs. Blassingame at the dining hall so she can get ready for lunch. I back up another three-point turn, and then I drive very carefully and slowly up the long, straight driveway and park Bessie in her little carport. I get out, close the door, and I'm feeling pretty comfortable, pretty good about myself. Now the children have all gathered in a big circle. We're ready to have our blessing for lunch. Mr. Game, Mrs. Game, come out of the, the dining hall, and we're all standing ready for our blessing. When Mrs. Game looks over my shoulder and she says, oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> and we all turn, and there goes Bessie backwards down that long, steep, Straight driveway, picking up speed faster, faster. She crosses the camp road, hits the drainage ditch, and comes up and then pirouettes beautifully and (laughs) lands on all four wheels, continues on down the steep embankment right through the middle of the garden. And she's going through the garden. Kenny, who is a star track athlete at Tyner High School, came sprinting across the the, uh, little area there Towards Bessie, we're all yelling, no, Kenny, no. He jumps up on the running board while she's still moving, leans through the window, and begins to honk the horn. (laughs) Bessie finally stops along about the corn, and everything gets quiet. Total silence. And all the kids and Mr. and Mrs. Blassingame turn and look at me. And I can think of nothing else to say, but, so, what's for lunch? (laughs) Well, sitting at lunch, I'm next to a 14-year-old student named Roy. Roy had been sent to the Baptist Children's Home because his mother was in prison. His father couldn't afford to keep him at home. And so Roy had been at the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home for about four years. He was 14 years old. He leaned over to me at lunch, and he said, You're not very smart, are you? (laughs) Don't you know that you're supposed to put the emergency brake on and put it in gear before you leave? Roy knew this because as a 14-year-old, he'd been driving in Tennessee for about two years. (laughs) He was in Tennessee. I'm from Tennessee, so I can say that. And in that moment and from that point forward, my relationship with those kids shifted. Up to that point, I had been a college student called upon to keep these kids busy. After that point, I became somebody who was kind of a knucklehead, had messed up and needed a little more support. In other words, these kids knew what it felt like to be lonely and left out. Many of them felt of themselves as failures. Together they were in this place where they were convinced nobody wanted them. And they began to see in me and I began to see in myself a fallible, earthy, individual who needed a little grace. Somebody who didn't know enough to put on the emergency brake and put it in gear. Somebody who needed a little extra support. When Paul was talking to this congregation of people a lot like me and you who needed to be reminded, first of all, of their earthiness and secondly, their holiness and how fortunate they and we are to be glad participants in this amazing, steadfast love of God that is from everlasting unto everlasting. This is what allows you and me to fulfill our destiny, to live our lives for the praise of God's glory, and to do good. Sometimes we get confused in our culture. It's so easy to forget this important reminder of why we are here. Sometimes we take more seriously our Declaration of Independence as opposed to our scriptures. The pursuit of happiness sometimes becomes our modus operandi. We confuse Jefferson with Jesus, and yet it's not the pursuit of happiness. It's the power of doing good. Only to discover that if and when we can do good in Jesus' name, then, so often, we're overwhelmed with happiness, It's this amazing paradox that the people of Ephesus and the people of Decatur and the people in our country and in our world are so desperate to be reminded of. What an honor it is to be working together with you as partners in the steadfast love of God from everlasting. On to everlasting.